e-commerce is broken, retail's changing, and your startup won't be the next Casper. Welcome to The Syndicate, the blogcast series, where we talk about big issues in tech, where the future's headed, and a whole lot of other things related to startups, venture capital, investing, and the future of society. So I'm your host, Matt Ward. I'm an angel investor, advisor, and serial entrepreneur. Over at thesyndicate.vc, you can learn more about me, subscribe for our interview series where we interview and talk with some of the top angels and VCs around the world, and get our access to our roundtables where we'll have some of the smartest experts on topics like cryptocurrency, futuristic technologies, AI, autonomous vehicles, consumer tech. We just did one yesterday with Tim O'Reilly. It was quite great. I recommend checking it out. But let's get on to the episode. Today, we're talking about the broken business of e-commerce and why your startup isn't the next Casper. If you haven't heard, Amazon won e-commerce. Bezos' juggernaut is the most powerful marketplace and brand the world has ever seen. The Western world, at least. To get a little bit of an analysis on why Amazon's killing e-commerce, visit thesyndicate.vc and search for Amazon is killing e-commerce. But you know what? It's not the only game in town. Every year, new startups appear. They're looking to compete and grab their piece of the pie. As an ex-Amazon seller and host of a top Amazon podcast, I can say for certain that the majority of the action in e-commerce is on the brand side. And it gets easier and easier to source and manufacture products and put your label on it. The thing is, these businesses aren't fundable. There's no disruptive innovation. There's no world-shattering business. There's no venture-scale profits in the pipeline. That's fine. But if you want to go big, you're an investor and operator interested in venture-scale e-commerce and looking for an edge, this is the article for you. There's two fundable categories of e-commerce. Marketplaces and brands. When it comes to marketplaces, I've covered this topic extensively. I'll reference the articles here. So two articles, the cult-like religion of ICOs and the end of Amazon and the five types of network effects and how to hack them. If you visit the syndicate.vc, you can find both of those in the blog. Alternatively, if you're on Medium and you search Matt Ward, you'll be able to find these as well. I'm not going to cover marketplaces because we've covered this quite a bit. To date, the majority of money and returns have been made via marketplaces, however. Look no further than Amazon, eBay, or Etsy. Note, for the purposes of this article, SaaS and Shopify-based solutions, specifically in a B2B sense, aren't included as categories for e-commerce. Two, brands. Brands' business models are getting more and more interesting. There are four disruptive types of e-commerce businesses. Direct-to-consumer brands, subscription companies, delivery companies, and experiential commerce companies. Let's look at each of these, their outliers, and what the future holds. Direct-to-consumer companies. Recently, mega-companies have been created disrupting traditional supply chains. Brands like Casper's, Harry's, Warby Parker, they're leading the way. These DTC or direct-to-consumer brands cut out the middlemen and sell online, owning manufacturing, giving customers better value for their money. While consumers save a ton of money, the brands get a boost on the margins too. Fewer mouths to feed, fewer middlemen, they control the supply chain, and they build defensibility in their business. Very important. They all take it a step further though. The brand becomes the experience. Casper delivers a box, a mattress in a box. The mattress inflates itself. It's ready to go. How cool is that? Harry's and Warby Parker, they're delivering premium products and a premium experience at pretty affordable prices. Their focus on brand keeps consumers coming back because consumers love the products. And their NPS score and word of mouth work wonders for marketing. Warby Parker's NPS, 91. I believe that's higher than Apple or the majority of other companies out there. 
but it's not all direct consumer businesses. Those don't work so well. The vast majority fail. The reason's the model. Casper isn't valued at $750 million plus because of their mattresses. The company succeeded because the industry was broken. Buying mattresses is incredibly inefficient. You go to a mattress store, you try out tons of beds, you spend a bunch of time, and you have a sleazy salesman trying to sell you something. Plus, retailers needed a heck of a lot of inventory. That's expensive. Casper flips the model on its head. There's no distributor, no wholesaler, no retail store. By avoiding overhead, middlemen, and excess shipping costs, Casper creates a truly unique and valuable experience. And to top it all off, there's a free 100-night trial. What other company gives you three-plus months to try out a product? Especially one you have sex on. Which is another interesting thing the brand does. It's specifically designed and optimized for great sex, as well as great sleep, according to the Washington Post. Apparently some reporter was having fun with that story. But playing to your strengths and engaging an alternative-type brand, that builds buzz. That's something that most companies don't do, and that's what helps these companies succeed. There's a problem with direct-to-consumer brands, though. Too many startups try to be the Casper of X or the Warby Parker of Y. It doesn't work. Warby Parker was successful because of the broken luxury eyewear market. It was expensive and not democratized. They cut out costs while increasing quality, and they built a killer company. But this approach fails in most industries. If an industry isn't inefficient enough, a DTC model will not work. Startups need a 5 to 10x improvement to displace the incumbent. Saving Joe Schmo 10% rarely results in unicorns. Things to look for when starting a direct-to-consumer brand. Categories with high gross margins and medium to big ticket items. These allow for greater CAC cost of acquisition. So, i.e., you can spend more to acquire a customer. Categories with few entrenched incumbents dominating the industry. This likely means the market costs are inflated and there's significant room to price cut. Product lines where the barrier to entry are very large. Think massive minimum order quantities or tooling costs. You don't want a lot of competition right when you get started. Products with some repeat purchasing behavior. Reorders really drive LTV, lifetime value. And a relatively small product line. The fewer SKUs you sell, the lower the cost and the easier it is to focus and improve. If brands don't check at least two to three of those boxes, they're going to have trouble. The last thing with direct-to-consumer models you want is competition right out of the gate. Number two, subscription companies. While direct-to-consumer brands can also offer subscriptions, the vast majority of subscription companies do not own their supply chain. Throughout 2015 and 2016, subscription businesses were hot. Companies like Blue Apron, Birchbox, Trunk Club, and Dollar Shave Club raised collectively $462 million. They're by no means the only ones. Subscription companies are sexy. They're recurring revenues like SaaS, but with physical products. This is incredibly rare in retail and e-commerce. Hence the excitement. There's a problem with subscription companies, though. So lately, these companies have come under fire. According to Recode, Blue Apron is the worst-performing IPO of 2017. Their valuation is 59% of their previous round. Can you imagine if you got on that last one? You're not a happy, happy camper at this point. Big part of that is Amazon starting to do deliveries as well. If you're interested in Amazon, thesyndicate.vc, check out our blog, just search for Amazon. We have quite a few interesting articles about Amazon and the implications for the future of e-commerce. But for Blue Apron and subscription companies specifically, there's a problem. Churn and unit economics. Delivery businesses are cost-intensive. That's why Blue Apron raised $200 million to date, excluding a massive IPO which is kind of tanked. And that's all fine and well when the LTV projections hold. What happens when they don't, though? 
The meal kit delivery space is increasingly crowded, even as Amazon is getting in on the action. And even though the company created demand where it previously didn't exist, users are switching to cheaper providers or passing on meal kits all entirely. That spells trouble. A similar problem occurs in fashion. You only need so many shoes. More and more isn't appreciated, unless you're one of those people. And eventually, more just becomes problematic. How long do you stick around? This is where predictable repeat purchasing behavior comes in. This is why Dollar Shave Club has been so successful. Men need to shave. It's that simple. Unless you have an awesome beard like me. Either way, you acquire a customer, you keep them for life. And that's why Unilever played $1 billion to acquire Dollar Shave Club. Repeat buyers, that's sacred for subscription companies. Ones that don't tap into repeat buying behaviors are toast. Things to look for when starting a subscription company. Product with significant repeat purchasing behavior. Ideally consumable in nature so that it's not just something that builds up, but you keep ending it and being done with it. Category with few innovations and startups. Product line where the barriers to entry are very large and potential upsells and re-monetization strategies. Delivery company. As an angel investor, I'd avoid these entirely. Delivery is a race to the bottom. There's no value. And there's few ways to differentiate. If you get my food here five minutes faster or $2 cheaper, I'll use you every time. Consumers don't care who's delivering. It can be Uber, Instacart, Amazon. It's all the same. In essence, delivery companies are supply chain and demand aggregators. Supply and demand aggregators. Company like Instacart for groceries and DoorDash for takeout rush food to you fast. There's a problem though. Supply isn't proprietary. What prevents Pizza Hut from offering delivery or adding their menu to Grubhub? And Amazon acquiring Whole Foods, Instacart's number one offering, has really laid waste to some of this. For more implications, the syndicate.vc, just search for Whole Foods and you'll find out what Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods means for the future of grocery retail and the U.S. as we know it. But with the proprietary problem, of course, there's nothing. Any business that's built on paying to acquire customers without any kind of moat is a sandcastle that slowly sinks. These businesses were hot for a time, but the unit economics, like subscription startups, has failed to follow through. Competitive pressures drive down prices and margins. No one wins in a race to the bottom, which is why Uber is also in trouble. The syndicate.vc search for Uber or on Medium search for Uber's going to zero and Benchmark knows it. And you'll learn a little bit more about why Uber has some shaky unit economics and some challenges in the future. But even for some delivery companies that are breaking even or making money, there's a problem. What prevents competitors with cash from bidding them into oblivion, i.e. Uber's business model problem? For an interesting interview I did on the subject, I had Samuel Shaw, an investor in Instacart and DoorDash on, and we talked about the future of e-commerce and retail. If you go to the syndicate.vc slash semil, S-E-M-I-L, you can listen to that episode. Now, experiential commerce. Last but certainly not least is experiential commerce. In my opinion, this is where the money lies. The future isn't about small changes to the past. It's about reinventing what it means to shop. There are two categories of experiential commerce worth paying attention to. Local commerce. Companies like Warby Parker and Amazon are actually building out retail stores as the rest of retail dies. It makes sense. Being close to your customers allows brands to more efficiently grow and understand customers. It's a flip-flop of traditional shopping. Today you go to the store, you try out a phone at Best Buy, and you buy it online, probably from Amazon. You save 12%, you got a chance to try it before you buy it, you're happy. Best Buy isn't. So why fight customer behavior? Amazon recognizes the value of window shopping and trying things out. 
lure customer into the store, and when there's one-click shopping checkout, the average order size will definitely increase. Retail brands need to follow suit. Reduce footprint, increase online stock, and start selling. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. That's why most will die. This creates an interesting opportunity for startups and investors, though. As large companies see the end in sight, they fight tooth and nail to survive. That often equates to buying startups. Look at General Motors' billion-dollar acquisition of cruise automation, or Ford's investment in Argo AI. The incumbents will pay big bucks to save their skin. Things to look for when considering local retail e-commerce. Products with large size to cost ratio. Wide, large size to waste with large cost to size weight ratios, i.e., you want to be selling things that are expensive but not large and heavy. The larger and heavier they are, the more of a footprint you have, the more expensive it's going to be for having the, the real estate. Categories with high gross margins and medium to big ticket items. These allow for greater CAC. Category with few innovative competitors. And product lines where returns are high without trying the product first i.e. you want people trying out these products and now because you're doing that and allowing them to try it out and then buy it, you're going to have much less of a problem with competition versus traditional e-commerce players who have high returns. Think shoes that don't fit with Zappos or something similar. But big box retailers can do this too. Cooking classes at Kroger, a senior citizen's electronics class at Best Buy, dog care classes at Petco. There are tons of ways for retail to save itself. Unfortunately, understanding the customer and creating experiences is often harder than offering just another flash sale. So we could probably call this death by a million deals. The second type of experiential commerce, virtual real-world commerce. So the future of commerce surely isn't all local. Many are betting big on VR and AR for enhanced online shopping. When shopping for furniture, nothing beats seeing the sofa in your home except a virtual world where you walk around an infinite Ikea from anywhere, anytime, that seamlessly tailors itself to your tastes. There's tons of ways these trends can play out, and many angles. As a rule of thumb, I prefer picks and shovels businesses, i.e. products or services that help businesses succeed. As such, I'm interested in marketplaces and technologies facilitating virtually enhanced commerce. If it improves conversion rates and creates unfair advantages, it's valuable. If it can apply be applied across a wide range of businesses, it's exponentially so. But AR and VR aren't the only types of virtual experiential commerce. Britt Morin of Britt Co. is creating a lasting brand by baking real-world experiences right into the product. What started out as a DIY, DIY hobbyist shop site, not shop, now sells video classes on a wide range of hobbyist activities like knitting, scrapbooking, handicrafting, and more. And they make great money from that. It gets even better though. They also sell the kits. You want to take our course on hit sewing? Here's everything you need at a nice high margin price point. They built a brand around creative empowerment and they started charging for courses. They added significant e-commerce element. That's a defensible business. That's a company killing it with virtual experiences and content driving real world sales. The other type, virtual world commerce. There are also more futuristic types of virtual e-commerce, such as e-commerce that takes place in a virtual world. Freemium is an increasingly popular model for games. Play your favorite MMOG, FPS, or RPG game with friends, and of course you want to buy bonuses. Better armor, more lives, bling. One, for one reason or another, people pay for virtual goods. Expect this trend to continue. If and when virtual reality becomes ubiquitous, more and more commerce will occur via virtual goods. 
In Minecraft, people build worlds. They spend hundreds of hours perfecting them. Those same individuals and many more will want to perfect their virtual experiences. The right sofa, new Nikes, an anti-gravity machine, the opportunities are endless. If and when people begin spending more and more time in VR, expect the economies to boom. It'll be a gold rush and very likely a black market to begin with. The entire structure of society and commerce will need to be rebuilt and redefined. What are the rules in VR? Is stealing wrong? What about the world's oldest profession? Surely prostitution, though not typically considered e-commerce, would enter into this realm. In a virtual world, who's armed? Look at the porn industry. As vile as it may be, they are some of the earliest innovators and adopters of new technology. I'd argue porn will probably lead the way for pushing VR. According to the Huffington Post, 30% of data transferred across the internet is porn. How crazy is that? In a new world with new rules, who sets the laws? Who enforces them? Virtual prostitution will drive much of the commerce engines and business models of VR. It'll create the frameworks and opportunities for other service providers to begin offering and monetizing their skills. And all this is incredibly controversial. So I ask, are we in Westworld yet? And what about 3D printing? Another consideration to think about as we think about futuristic types of e-commerce is where a virtual world meets the physical world. Where do virtual assets you create in the real world land? Will patents on 3D printed designs become mainstream? If 3D printing finally, finally gets to what's been overpromised for years, the world's supply chains would break. What purpose would manufacturing in China have if I can print an iPhone at home? Surely human workers will be outpaced by machines. When these machines become small enough and ubiquitous enough, the majority of sea shipments will cease to exist. But that's betting on a future that 3D printing has so far failed to deliver to date. Either way, let's forecast the future. Who wins here? Not the manufacturers. Not the 3D printers. If business has taught us anything, 3D printing will make supply chains flat. That means vertical integration opposes their very nature. So the real money won't be made by the makers. Anyone can do that. That drives competition in a race to the bottom. To win the game, you need to own the platform, the marketplace, or the IP. Android's a good metaphor for the platform play. You own the operating system, aggregate data, and advertise or upsell as you see fit. For marketplaces, think Amazon. People don't want to go to a million torrent sites to find the designs they want printed fast and easy. A marketplace connecting printers with IP creates value for both parties and a simple commission structure for the marketplace. Aggregator of supply and demand. And of course, IP. Patent trolls make money, but so do product creators. Consider 3D intellectual property like an ebook. Create it once and continuously sell. Owning the IP is the least scalable of these models, but a great option for DIYers and early adopters looking to own their own piece of the pie. So what do you think? I certainly don't have a crystal ball. The world's going to evolve on its own, and we can never really predict the future. But we can guess. So what do you guess? What are your thoughts on the future? The future of e-commerce? The implications for society as a whole? I always love to debate and hear other people's perspectives. The syndicate.vc slash blogcast iTunes to subscribe if you want to get in on the action with our iTunes. Or you can also just go to the syndicate.vc. There we have some interviews from some of the top investors, VCs around the world, and lots of thought-provoking articles like this one to dig into topics like e-commerce, cryptocurrency, AI, the future of tech, society, humanity. If it's been interesting, I would love to have you come over there, subscribe, join, and share this with a friend. If it's been interesting, if you're in e-commerce, if you're terabyte about the world of Amazon and what 
the business of the future is, then yeah, share it around, talk about it, leave some comments in the comment section below. I guess you'll have to jump to the syndicate.vc to do that, but I should probably shut up at this point because I'm talking much too much and it's time to get back to business. Until next time, I will talk to you guys later. This has been a Syndicate podcast episode, something like that. Cheers.